But why don't we just go to God's Word? Let me invite you to uh, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter uh, 6 for our time of study in the Word uh, this morning. If you want to give a title to the message this morning, it would be Sober Counsel for a Good Harvest. And this message is part one, and next week will be part two. I do deliver this message with something of a burdened heart. Uh, these two messages are an opportunity for me to unburden uh, my heart and speak encouragement uh, to my own heart as well as to all of us as a, a congregation. Several years ago, um, in fact, it was back in 2005, a, a Christian writer uh, whom I had some esteem for uh, wrote some very helpful words about the Christian life that meant a lot uh, to me. In one of his books, he wrote these words. Listen to them as I read them. He says, do you know why some Christians make great strides in their walk with God while others are stagnant? Have you ever wondered if there is a godliness gene that some people are born with? Of course, there isn't. The difference between the person who grows in holiness and the one who doesn't isn't a matter of personality, upbringing or gifting. The difference is what each has planted into the soil of his or her heart and soul. So holiness isn't a mysterious spiritual state that only an elite few can reach. It's more than an emotion or a resolution. Holiness is a harvest. Amen. When I read those words back in 2017, I immediately highlighted them. I knew they would be useful to me in my walk with the Lord and my ministry to others. In fact, this sermon represents at least the third time that I have read these exact words uh, to you from this pulpit. I also read these words in a college career meeting several years ago when I was speaking to the group on the subject of things I wish I would have known before I was 25 years of age. More personally, I've often found myself uh, since reading what I just read to you, thinking of the words, holiness is a harvest. Thinking of those words at times when I was being tempted to give up the fight. I've also spoken those four words, holiness is a harvest. In many moments of interactions with people in this congregation and in many counseling sessions, some of you have heard me say those words, and this is where I got those words. Those helpful and hopeful words were written in 2005 by Joshua Harris in his book, Not Even a Hint. So you can imagine the range of emotions that I felt uh, when I read an Instagram post by Joshua Harris that many of you also read. In that post, he writes, amongst other things, these words, he says, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The biblical phrase for this is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. 
He says a number of other things in his post, one of which is as follows to the LGBTQ plus community. I want to say that I'm sorry for the views that I taught in my books and as a pastor regarding sexuality. I regret standing against marriage equality for not affirming you and your place in the church. Knowing that Christians would be grieving around the world over his abandonment of the faith. At the end of his post, he writes these words to Christians To my Christian friends, I can't join you in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe that all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. A week later, after this post, he posted pictures of himself at a pride parade in Vancouver, Canada. That Instagram post by Joshua Harris hit me like a body blow, as I know it did some of you over the two weeks that followed. I found myself thinking about him constantly. I wondered how he could fall away from Jesus Christ. And then I also wondered if I have it in me to do the same thing one day. I found myself wondering if I will finish well for Christ or if I will end up making shipwreck of my faith. I kept thinking about the words that Joshua Harris wrote about holiness being a harvest, words that had always given me so much perspective and hope. And I found my thoughts going repeatedly to Galatians chapter 6, the passage from which Joshua Harris had derived that great insight. The words of Galatians 6, 1 through 10 were written by the Apostle Paul, a man who never fell away from Jesus, a man who finished well by the grace of God, a man who is right now reaping an amazing harvest in heaven. If Paul could speak to us uh, today, he would tell us that the words that he wrote in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, are even more true than he himself realized when he wrote them. And I want us to begin this ministry year by studying these words from Paul, both this Sunday and and next Sunday. There's a lot in these verses. We're not going to look at every detail of them, but we will uh, look at what I think the Lord may have for us as a congregation at this time. But let me be, begin by reading uh, this passage to you, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. 
The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. These are the words of God and may God help us to understand and believe and obey them. At the end of our lives, all of us who know the Lord want to experience the blessing of a good harvest. I can't imagine anyone wanting a bad harvest. Yet sometimes even as Christians, we can grow overwhelmed, we can grow weary, and we can lose heart. Other times we ourselves stray into sin or we see someone else in the church straying into sin or we see someone throwing off all restraint and abandoning the faith altogether. How do we stay motivated to press on in the midst of discouragements and casualties of war? What can motivate us to keep pressing on and doing good so that we will one day experience a very satisfying and great harvest? Paul's words in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 through 10 can help us uh, with this. Ultimately, at least the way we're going to break this passage down, Paul gives us what amounts to seven instructions that we'll, we will want to follow if we want to enjoy a good harvest from God this morning. We're just going to look at three of them that we find in verses one uh, through five. Three instructions that we should follow if we wish to enjoy a good harvest from God. The first one, let's word it this way. When failure occurs, strive for restoration back to the right path. When failure occurs, strive for restoration back to the right path. When failure occurs in your life or when it occurs in the life of a brother or sister, strive for restoration back to the right path. In verse 1, Paul gives this counsel. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. This instruction from Paul indicates that there are times when genuine believers in Jesus in the church can get overtaken or captured in a trespass, caught in a trespass and getting caught in a trespass doesn't mean that someone caught you in the act of committing that trespass. It means that someone's been drawn into temptation and then given into that temptation and then become ensnared in that sin. They become ensnared by the guilt of that sin and they can't get out of that guilt or the addictive power or the attraction of that sin. 
And they become so self-deceived, so deceived by sin that they can't break free on their own without the help of other people. That's what it means to be caught in a trespass. A person caught in a trespass has many needs in that moment. They need to be reminded of God's power. They need to be reminded of God's grace. They need to be helped in repenting of their sin and calling it what it is without making any excuses. They need accountability. They need to be helped to see once again the beauty of Christ and his ways. And they need to be helped back onto the path of righteousness. They also need to be warned and reminded of the truth about sin, which so easily deceives us. They need to hear things like what the Puritan writer Thomas Brooks once wrote to people regarding sin. Listen to his counsel to all of us as to how we should look at sin, especially in our moments of temptation. He writes these words. He says, look on sin with that eye with which within a few hours we shall see it. Ah, souls. When you shall lie upon a dying bed and stand before a judgment seat, sin shall be unmasked and its dress and robes shall then be taken off and then it shall appear more vile, filthy and terrible than hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared most sweet will appear most bitter. And that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly. And that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful to the soul. Ah, the shame, the pain, the gall, the bitterness, the horror, the hell of that sight. The hell that that sight of sin, when its dress is taken off, will raise in poor souls. He continues... O souls, the day is at hand when the devil will pull off the paint and garnish that he hath put upon sin and present that monster sin in such a monstrous shape to your souls that it will cause your thoughts to be troubled, your countenance to be changed, the joints of your loins to be loosed and your knees to be dashed one against another and your hearts to be so terrified that you will be ready with Ahithophel and Judas to strangle and hang your bodies on the earth and your souls in hell if the Lord hath not more mercy on you than he had on them. Oh, therefore, look upon sin now as you must look upon it to all eternity. And as God, conscience and Satan will present it to you another day. These are good words to remind us of the ugliness of sin. May God help us as a congregation to see the repulsiveness of sin. May he make us a, a, a sin-hating church that first and foremost hates sin in ourselves. And may he help us to help others become free of sin and restored to the path of righteousness when failure occurs.
As you see in verse 1, the task of restoring an erring brother or sister is something that Paul wants those who are spiritual to do. And nowadays, almost anyone will tell you, I'm a spiritual person. Hugh Hefner uh, called himself a spiritual person. Madonna considers herself a spiritual person. But biblically speaking, a spiritual person is not necessarily a perfect person, but a person who is striving to walk according to the spirit, the Holy Spirit, rather than living by the dictates of their flesh. Such a person is praying with the help of the Holy Spirit. They're walking in the Spirit. They're saturating their minds with the Scriptures, which were inspired by the Spirit. Such people are qualified and equipped to help an erring brother back to the right path. So if you want training in how to help restore others from disobedience to obedience, then just be spiritual. Walk according to the Spirit. Saturate your mind with the things of the Spirit revealed in the Word of God. According to verse 1, when we seek to restore a sinning brother, we should do so with gentleness, not with harshness or with arrogance, but with gentleness And we are to seek to restore the sinning brother or sister, not condemn them, but restore them, not gossip about them, but restore them, not shove them aside and abandon them, but restore them the very way that Jesus restored Peter after Peter had denied him with an oath, having denied him three times. We should also seek to restore a sinning brother or sister with humility. As Paul says, looking to ourselves so that we too will not be tempted and get caught in the same way. We should all realize that we all have within us the capacity to become ensnared by sin. And so we're not better than anybody else. We're not better than the person we're trying to restore, but we're there to help them in a spirit of humility, knowing that I'm helping you today. And a month from now, it may be you helping restore me. That's the attitude. Let's do a good job this year of looking after each other. If someone is overtaken with a sin, don't look down on that person. Reach out to them, move toward them and help them. And if you find yourself overtaken with a sin, don't be ashamed to go to others and admit that to them. Reach out and ask for help and let those who are walking in the spirit help restore you to a path of obedience to God. I've had to do this at times in my own life. And I'm pretty sure I should have done it much more often than I have. It's one of the best things that we can do to ensure that we experience a good harvest from God. So may God give us grace to take care of each other according to the dictates of this instruction that we find in verse 1 of Galatians 6. There's a second instruction that Paul gives that we should follow if we want to experience a good harvest, and that is, to bear one another's burdens in fulfillment of the law of Christ, to 
bear one another's burdens in fulfillment of the law of Christ. In verse 2 and 3, Paul gives this counsel. He says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, when Paul says bear one another's burdens, what is he talking about? In the immediate context, the burdens we're called to bear uh, is the burden of helping each other when someone's caught in a trespass, right? Obviously, that's one of the key burdens that Paul has on his mind. But more broadly, the burden represented by that is the burden of each other's sanctification or growth in holiness. And make no mistake, guys, sanctification is a burden, though it is a good, delicious burden. It's a good burden the way a soldier involved in a noble war is bearing a good burden. The burden of pursuing holiness is definitely an easier burden than living in sin for the way of the transgressors is hard, Solomon says in Proverbs 13, but it is a burden because it's warfare, which involves taking fiery darts from the evil one and rebelling against our own flesh that wars against the spirit at every turn. Pursuing holiness involves fighting for every inch of progress against a world system that is always seeking to influence us in the opposite direction. So we should help each other with this good burden that we call sanctification. As Paul Tripp often says, your sanctification is a community project. And so is the sanctification of your brothers and sisters. Maybe someone in the church needs help with their task of being a godly parent to their children. They need wisdom. They need hope. Yet they find themselves often at their wits end without hope. Perhaps it's a brother struggling with sexual purity or a sister who is struggling with contentment as a single woman. Perhaps it is a younger woman who is struggling in her marriage and she needs an older woman to come alongside of her and teach her how to love her husband and be a good mother to her children. Perhaps it's someone who is struggling with depression or anxiety. Maybe a brother or sister is grieving over the loss of a loved one, over the departure of a spouse or over wrongs done against them. And they need someone to move toward them and get under that load together with them. Perhaps someone is struggling with the wounds of abuse from their past and they need help with that. Perhaps it is someone who is seeking to restore an erring brother or sister from the error of their way and that person doing the restoring can use some help. Beyond that, among the burdens that we have in life that are some of which are common to to man that are experienced by believers and non-believers uh, alike. But among the burdens that we have in life are the good duties to which God calls us. We're normally uncomfortable using the language of burden to speak of 
God's commandments or the duties that he gives to us in his word. But the early Christians, honestly, were not uncomfortable with that kind of language. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, verse 28, the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church uh, were giving to the Gentile Christians uh, some basic duties, some basic instructions And they preface those duties by saying to these Gentile Christians, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials. In other words, the Holy Spirit wanted us to lay upon you the burden of these essentials, but the Spirit did not want us to lay on you any additional burden beyond these essentials. The language that we see in Acts 15, 28 indicates that part of our burdens are the noble duties under which God has called us. And if that is true, then part of bearing one another's burdens involves helping each other fulfill these duties as God has called us to, which can then produce astonishing results when we come together in this way and help each other. In fact, if we truly love God, And we truly help one another in this way. The result is that we will find that keeping the commandments of God are not burdensome. After all, they are unburdensome burdens when born in community with one another. You're trying to obey God as an isolated Christian. You'll probably be crushed under the weight of that. If you're really loving God and seeking to keep the commandments of God and obey God in community and vibrant community with others, you'll find yourself often saying, where's the burden? This doesn't feel like a burden at all. What is evident is that God has designed the Christian life in such a way that we must help each other with the burdens that are Upon us, verse 2 of Galatians 6 implies that God specifically allows burdens to be put on you that are too heavy for you to bear by your isolated self. And you need others to come alongside of you and to help you carry the weight of those burdens. And God specifically allows your brothers and sisters to experience situations when their burdens are too heavy for them to bear by themselves. That's by God's design. It's not a sign of unusual weakness on their part. That's God's plan A, and their burden is by God's design only bearable if you come alongside of them and get under that load together with them. The cool thing here is that I may have a burden that is too great for me to bear, and you may have a burden that is too great for you to bear. But if I help you bear your burden and you help me bear my burden, then both of our burdens become bearable. That's the way God designed it to be. Burdens are bearable when born in community because, guys, listen to this. We're going to do some math here. In the church... One plus one does not equal two. It equals a bigger number than that because you and I are fuller, richer versions of ourselves when we are connected to each other. 
Can I take a risk here and use a dog illustration? Uh, we have a dog in our home named Jax. Um, for some of you, this is the only thing you're going to remember from this sermon. <laughs> we have a dog in our home whose name is Jax. Uh, Jax is pretty much, he pretty much only hangs around human beings. So most of the time he behaves as if he's half dog and half human. But occasionally, when another dog has been brought into our home, Jax becomes 120% dog. And we've been shocked at the amped up version of him that we see displayed when he's with another dog. With another dog in the house, Jax becomes a fuller version of his dog self. He achieves maximum doggity dogness when another <laughs> dog is brought into our home. And so does the dog that has been brought into our home. And so what we've noticed is that one dog plus one dog does not equal two dogs. It equals something closer to three or four or more because now we have two amped up dogs who are being fully dog and full versions of themselves. I don't share this to liken us to dogs, but if you will allow me this analogy, the same thing I've noticed is true for us as Christians. The Christian who is by himself, isolated and by himself, is hardly half of what he could be. Put him together with another Christian or several other Christians doing community with them, and he becomes a fuller version of himself, and so does everyone else. And the result is that five amped-up Christians living in community with each other are stronger than 20 Christians living in isolation could ever be. This is why burden-bearing is so much easier when it's done in community with one another. Burden bearing is community. It's a way of describing community. And Paul calls us into this community with each other where if we obey this call, we will find ourselves amazed at our capacity for bearing each other's burdens. Beyond that, according to Paul's words here in this verse, when you bear someone else's Burden, and you allow them to bear your burdens, you contribute to the fulfilling of the law of Christ in the church community, which is essentially the law of love that Christ lived by. This is why God designed the Christian life in such a way that we would need each other. That's why he allows you to have burdens that are too big for you to bear by yourself. Rather than making us self-sufficient entities who never need anybody else, when we move toward one another out of need in us and that we see in each other and we bear each other's burdens, we're bringing about a fullness of expression to the law of love, the law of Christ among us, putting his law of love on display for all to see because God wants the world to see what love looks like when they see the way we relate to each other. It's no wonder then that Jesus says in John 13, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
In our passage today, we could say it this way, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill and manifest the law of Christ, which is the law of love. Our world today is full of so much dysfunction that many people in our world today have concluded that there is no such thing as love. And that presents an opportunity for us to show them that there is such a thing as love by the way we bear each other's burdens and care for one another. And may Cornerstone be such a congregation where the love of God is on display in this way. But you know what? Let's just be real for a second. Uh, it's, It's easy to talk a great game when it comes to this topic of burden bearing. Uh, But for this to happen, we must become burden embracers. And often we run away from burdens. You may even hear this talk about burden bearing and think, you know what, I got enough burdens of my own, which are too much for me to bear. I have no bandwidth in my life to help others carry their burdens. Well, you may be feeling that way because you're trying to bear all of your burdens alone and it's wearing you out. Perhaps if you were walking more in community with others and allowing others to help you with your burdens, your load wouldn't be so heavy and you might have the bandwidth to help others with their burdens. Or perhaps you've never realized how much your own soul can expand when you move towards someone else to help them with their burden. You fear what others may be taking from you without thinking about how your own soul might expand as you are serving them. Your heart can grow wider than you think it can if you're willing to trust God and move toward others and help them bear their burdens when we move toward others and we help them with their needs and their burdens, our own soul swells in size to meet that need. And we discover even in ourselves a richer, truer, fuller version of ourselves than we ever dream possible in the process of helping others. But we have to think humbly In order to experience this in verse three, Paul says, listen to his words. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself in and of yourself. You are nothing. Don't ever forget that in Christ. You are somebody, but in and of yourself, you are nothing apart from him. He even says, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you think that you can carry your own burdens all by yourself, even the burden of sanctification, then you're deceiving yourself, Paul says. And if you look down on someone else because they have a burden that they can't bear by themselves, then you're being arrogant and you're being self-deceived. Don't be this way. God intentionally gave to every Christian unique spiritual gifts and he intentionally left each of us with deficits so that we would need each other and come together in community with one another 
and thereby reflect his image in community with each other. So let's be humble. Let's move toward each other and bear the burdens of others and allow them to do the same for us. It's what we're being called to do in this passage. There's a third instruction that Paul gives us that we should follow if we want to experience a good harvest. And we find this in verse 4 and 5. Essentially, let's word it this way. Examine your own work and carry your own load. Examine your own work and carry your own load. Listen to Paul's counsel in verse 4. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another. When Paul tells you in this passage to examine your own work, he's not simply telling you to examine the quality of the work you've already done He's also talking about the work you're assigned to do that you haven't even done yet. He's telling you to keep your eyes on the work that you've been called to do and to do your job. Sometimes we get so focused on critiquing others for the work that they are supposed to do that we lose sight of the work that God has called us to engage in. A husband is too busy examining his wife's behavior, that he loses sight of what God has called him to do as a husband toward his wife. Or a wife is so preoccupied with fuming over her husband's failures that she loses sight of the work that God has called her to do in her marriage. As parents, we can get so occupied with telling our kids what they're supposed to be doing that we lose sight of what it is that God has called us to do. Or perhaps, kids, you're so occupied with critiquing your parents. You're such the expert on parenting at such a young age. It's amazing that you've lost sight of what God has called you to do. This can happen to all of us. We've all been guilty of this. In verse 4, Paul is saying, examine your own work. Be a student of the work that God has assigned to you at whatever station of life you are in right now and do your job. The church needs you to do your job. And when you're done doing your job, honestly examine the quality of the job that you've done. And when you're doing that examination, don't compare yourself with other people. God does not grade on a curve. Examine your own work by the standard of God's word. And if you did well, Don't boast about how you did better than other people in a way that distinguishes yourself from others. And if you have failed, don't say, well, at least I'm not as bad as those other people. Don't ever take pride in yourself or boast about yourself in comparison to someone else. That's what Paul is teaching us here And don't ever console yourself, comfort yourself on your poor performance because it's at least better than someone else's. Paul then gives this rationale in verse 5. He says, for each one will bear his own load. In other words, each one must do his part in living according to the law of Christ and be loving others. No one else can obey for you. 
No one else in the church can do exactly what it is that God has gifted you to do. If you don't do your part, then the church will suffer a loss that no one will be able to exactly make up for. God wants every single Christian in the local church doing his or her part. And in saying that each one must bear his own load, Paul is not he's not picturing the church as a collection of individuals carrying their own load and having nothing to do with each other. He just told us to bear one another's burdens. So we have to view this instruction in verse four in the light of that earlier instruction. In the light of that earlier instruction, it's clear that Paul is envisioning at least a couple things. First of all, he's envisioning the church full of people who each carry the load that they ought to carry so as not to unnecessarily be a burden to other people. For example, if you are capable of work and of gainful employment, then make yourself useful and get a job so that you don't burden other people unnecessarily. When it comes to holiness, be spending time in the word of God, practicing the disciplines, walking in the spirit so that you are spiritually strong and walking in wisdom and you don't make a lot of messes that other people have to come along behind you and clean up. If you are a mom or a dad, do the job that God calls you to do with your children that God has given to you. Don't neglect your children and hope that the your children's youth leader will make up for your negligence. When you don't do your job as a parent, you're increasing the load on other people. If you are a husband or a wife, do what God has called you to do in your marriage. Go to the word of God. Study what does God call me to do? Don't study what God calls your spouse to do, but what God calls you to do and examine that and study that and do that so that you don't make a mess of things that requires an investment of time from others to help untangle the knots that your disobedience has created. In your care group, do your part to make your care group as as good as possible. Help carry some of the load that is on your care group leader. If you drop your children off in the nursery each week, sign up to be on the rotation of people who have nursery duty. Don't simply be a taker who evaluates and critiques how everyone else is doing. But be a giver too and resolve to always give more than you take. In fact, secondly, the load that Paul is talking about here in verse 5 is primarily the load of pitching in to help bear the burdens of others. Paul has just told us to bear one another's burdens. So obviously the work of bearing the burdens of others is a part of your load. And each of us must do our part in carrying the load that God wants us to carry for the good of this local church community that he's made us a part of. So I would ask you, who has a burden that you can have a part in helping to carry right now? What loads do you see people struggling under? If you don't step up and help with that load, it'll either go unaddressed or someone else will need to step up and carry that load. 
show love to those who are in need under those loads and show love to everyone else who will be involved in helping them with their load by you stepping up and helping to carry that load. As the saying goes, many hands make what? Light work. In other words, many hands can take a burden and make it feel light like it's not even a burden at all. According to this text, if we do just what we've seen thus far, we fulfill the law of Christ, which is so beautiful. We manifest the heart of Jesus, who did exactly the same thing for us. Jesus left heaven's glories, came to earth. What did he do? He placed himself underneath our burden. When on the cross, the Bible tells us that he bore our every sorrow and our every grief. He willingly placed himself underneath your every sorrow and your every grief. And if that wasn't enough, when on the cross, he also bore our sins in his body. All we like sheep have gone astray. We made a huge mess. A lot of knots that need to be untied. And he had every reason to say, forget you. We had each turned to our own way and God moved toward us, got under our burden. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all and he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And because of this love that Jesus has shown to us at the cross, we can say that we were once continually straying like sheep, but now we've returned. We've been restored. Those of us who know Jesus, we've returned to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. Why have our lives been so changed? Because God came, placed himself underneath our burden in the person of Jesus, and he loved us. You and I, guys, are the recipients of a salvation that has come to us because we have a Savior who bore our burdens all the way to the cross. And God raised him from the dead. And this Jesus now speaks to all of us. And he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my load is light. Yes, it is a yoke. Yes, it is a load. But it's easy and light compared to walking in sin and carrying the weight of the guilt of your sins. If you're here this morning carrying the guilt of your sins, please look to Jesus. Call upon him to be your Lord and Savior if you believe in Jesus who died and shed his blood at the cross to give atonement for sins, he will be delighted to forgive you and to bring you into relationship with himself, free you of that burden that is on your back. And then you can join the rest of us now that we no longer have to bear the burden of our sins on our backs and to bear the burden of the toil of living in sin we now have the bandwidth to help bear the burdens of others. And we never look more like Jesus than when we do that. Amen.
Today is our ministry fair, as you may have noticed. About 30 of our church's ministries are represented around this auditorium and into the church lobby. Please visit these tables to see how you can get involved in what God is doing here. Some of these ministries are looking to serve and bless you and to get underneath your burdens and to help you with those burdens to be a help to you. Some of these ministries are looking for volunteers and they need you to help get underneath their burden as they seek to bless and bear the burdens of others. But visit these tables and enjoy the abundant testimony that they bear to the law of Christ that is at work in our midst so beautifully. And as you do uh, visit these tables this morning at the ministry fair, uh, please check out our care group table. Our care group year starts up two weeks from today, and we would strongly encourage you to be a part of a care group if you are not a part of one already. Every person who becomes a member of Cornerstone has covenanted to arrange themselves underneath the authority and the care of the shepherding ministry of the elders here. And one of the key ways that the elders have determined to execute their ministry of shepherding and care is through our care group ministry. So if you consider yourself a cornerstoner, it's important that you be an active participant in a care group. When you do that, guys, you put yourself in a position to benefit from not only the shepherding ministry of the church, but you also put yourself in an amazing position to practice this very ethic that we've been studying today in community with brothers and sisters who are a part of that care group. For those of you that are new with us, a typical care group meeting uh, usually takes place in someone's home, sometimes at the park, sometimes here on this campus. The formal part of the meeting lasts usually in most care groups about two hours during that meeting time. People are uh, gathered. They worship God through song. They celebrate the Lord's table. They fellowship around the teaching of God's word from this pulpit. They pray together. And beyond that, they bear one another's burdens in the meeting times and beyond and seek to grow in grace together, being led by godly leaders. And I know that the members of these groups would love to have you along for that amazing journey. So go by the care group table this morning and find a group to be a part of uh, so that you can be signed up for a group that you can participate in starting two weeks from today. Most of our care groups meet Sunday afternoons or evenings. Uh, One of them, I think, meets on a Monday night and another on a Friday evening. So find the right care group for you and then embrace this Uh, amazing opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ together with the members of, of that group. Let's go to the Lord and let's just pray together. Lord, we thank you just for the privilege of being a part of this amazing local church. I thank you for the brothers and sisters that are here who So many of them beautifully model the very things we're talking about in ways that it inspires and convicts. I have seen brothers and sisters 
become amazing versions of themselves in service to others. Lord, it's when we serve others and seek to bless others and allow your love to pass through us to others that we become the truest and fullest, richest version of ourselves. And I see that fullness on display through your precious people here at Cornerstone, and it's a blessing to be a part of this church. But Lord, we have needs, and there's an enemy that is out there that's looking to to destroy the work that you're doing here to lead each one of us astray. We need to be watchful. We need to care for one another. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is if we're in relationship with each other rather than living as isolated entities, each of us in our own world. And so help us, Lord, to to come closer together, to love each other better, to bear one another's burdens better. And may the very law of love, the law of Christ, be on full display in our midst. And if you grant this request, Lord, and do amazing things through us as a result and bring about a great harvest as a result, we promise you now that we will give all of the glory to you. And we will not boast in ourselves and how we're different than anyone else. Our boast will be in you and in you alone because you alone are worthy. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity as well to give of our offerings to you. Receive the funds that we give in this offering for the glory of Jesus and the spread of of the message of the gospel in this community and around the world. And at the same time, Lord, we give ourselves to you in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said,